We think in linear terms as human beings. We don't see exponential curves. So it's very difficult for us to predict where a disruptive curve will go using linear thinking. But if you map it out, you can see the logical course of events and you can leverage that chain of history to make massive transformative leaps. Hey everyone, welcome to Brains Behind AI, show where we meet the innovators, entrepreneurs, and the real brains behind some of the most successful AI startups. We ask them about their journey from coming up with the idea to finding the product market fit. And from their experience, draw a set of principles that we can take away to ours. This is your host, Ari. Thank you for spending time with us. And now, let the show begin. Hello and welcome to another episode of Brains Behind AI. I am Ari Yacobi and I am here joined with my co-host Natalie Thomas. Natalie, how are you? I am doing well today. Thank you so much, Ari. And I'm really excited to introduce our guest for today's episode. We have Dr. Daniel Araya. He is a co-founder of Aon Advisors, an international consultancy and a think tank. He is a senior partner with the World Legal Summit and a senior fellow at CG. Dr. Daniel is a leading expert at the intersection of artificial intelligence, technology, policy, and governance. He is a regular contributor to Forbes. And wait, there is more. He is also an author. His latest work includes Augmented Intelligence, a book on future of work and learning published in 2018, and Smart Cities as Democratic Ecologies published in 2015. Daniel has a doctorate from the University of Illinois and is an alumnus of Singularity University's graduate program in Silicon Valley. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hey, Daniel, we're excited to have you here. The first question I have for you is you have this very impressive background, cuts across. Would you mind taking us through your personal journey? Where did it all start and how did you end up where you are? Yeah, it's convoluted in some regards. It didn't seem that convoluted to me going through it, but when I articulate it and I go through the milestones, it's, it's, it's a bit broad. So in my 20s, I was a web developer. So I've always been pro-technology, I guess, and very inspired by its potential. But I also have a kind of like a policy wonk aspect about me. I, lo- I love what government can do. And I was very fixated on public policy and how technology could be leveraged by policy for innovation and for, for change. So I ended up going to grad school. I did a master's degree and then eventually a PhD in the U.S. In grad school, I was, my dissertation focus was the Obama administration's education policies. And I was essentially looking at how the future of knowledge and innovation hinges on human capital, right? This was the argument from the 90s on that, you know, where universities go determines the caliber of our talent and therefore how, how competitive we are economically in the global system. But I found that as I was doing the research in over a few years, and then finally published as a dissertation and a book, I found that the, what we call the knowledge economy wasn't one thing. It had at least four or five different what I called paradigms or dimensions, and that they weren't all the same. They had contradictions. So on the one hand, for example, you had the, the green economy, clean energy and clean technologies. And on the other hand, you had open source and open technologies, open innovation, a system that was, in a sense, post-capitalist, a lot of neo-Marxists would contribute to that discourse. Then you had the creative economy in Richard Florida, creative innovation, creative industries, 
And that was much more kind of over overlapping the arts. And then the final piece that I sort of, that I guess resonated with me the most was automation. And I came to realize that automation was a significant force and that it was underestimated, I thought, by the economists, you know, maybe five years ago in the period where I was researching it. And I started thinking that we're not, our policy regimes in the United States and in Canada, other Western countries, weren't prepared for this, right? Our social welfare system wasn't constructed around labor displacement and the possibilities that AI would do more and more routine labor. And so I just followed that train of thinking. And I guess that, that took me out of academia in a sense, because I think academia in many ways is in a bubble still. You know, it's, it was shaped decades ago. And I think a lot of the senior academics today, their views, you know, whether they're Marxist or feminist or whatever, I think they have value, but they, they're really framed and anchored in, a, in an industrial age that I think is rapidly disappearing. And I went to Silicon Valley, and I, I took part in Singularity University's program for three or four months. We were putting together startups. I kind of knocked on my ass a bit about what Silicon Valley was, how they were investing the capital, their vision of uh, disruptive, the disruptive curve, Moore's Law, computation. These things I think I knew you know, and had, had researched, so it's not like they were, they were new to me. But when you added them all up, you started to realize that this disruptive curve was reshaping the economy. And you see companies like Elon Musk's Tesla riding this curve and entirely disrupting the auto industry in a way that just seems like magic to most critics or analysts today, but is actually very predictable. And so I, I became fixated on technology and focused on the power of technology to disrupt, but also restructure society, both for the better, for, for good and for bad. And I started thinking about, you know, what, is the, what are the policy implications? And I wrote pieces for the Brookings Institution in the United States and here in Canada for CG, Center for National Government's Innovation. And we have a new piece coming out actually on AI in China. A lot of great content packed here, right? Let me ask you one thing that you mentioned that hit a nerve with me. So you talk about Elon Musk's company, which seems like how they've gone from just an idea to the most valuable automotive company in the world. You mentioned that it was very predictable, right? It was expected. Can you elaborate a bit more on, on what that means? I wouldn't say it was expected. That's not the word I'd use. But I'd say if you map it, if you graph it, you can see the falling costs of clean energy, the rising opportunities for leveraging those falling costs, and the potential for disrupting many markets, not just automotive, but uh, infrastructure, uh, factory labor, housing. You know, there's a lot of things that we're not doing effectively, whether it's in the private sector among some established industries or within government especially. There are a lot of things that we don't properly appreciate or understand about technology, right? We think, and this is a very, you know, Kurtzwell says this all the time, this is some, something that SU, Singular University commonly speak to. We think in linear terms as human beings. We don't see exponential curves. So it's very difficult for us to predict where a disruptive curve will go using linear thinking. But if you map it out, you can see the logical course of events, and you can leverage that, that chain of history to make massive trans transformative leaps. And it takes you know, individuals like Elon Musk, who I, who I think is very inspiring. I mean, but he might be limited you know, in terms of his Twitter rants, but he is inspiring in terms of his perception of what radical things can occur. And I think, to be honest, radical change is something that we try to avoid now. You know, there's a lot of discussion about how, you know, technology is radical. But the truth is, I think we, we are overseen by a kind of 
gerontocracy of very elderly people that have a lot of money that are, are resistant to change. And so it takes new generations with some capital, like Elon Musk and others, to begin to make, to build, begin to anchor their companies in, in new industries and leverage the, the shift as, as, you know, the exponential curve unfolds. And you can see that, you know, with, you know, uh, the digital era with the disruption of Kodak, or you can see that with the film industry and now Netflix. I mean, these are all in many ways predictable. You know, when you have new technologies, entrepreneurs are going to leverage those technologies, but incumbents are going to see those technologies as a threat and try to build some kind of support system to protect themselves. When you do that at the government level, at the Fed level, or at the, you know, whether it's European Union or the Canadian government, it can be disastrous. What you need is, you know, leadership that sees the future. And I think that's hard to do. And this is a little rant of mine, but, you know, just to put it in context, the wealth of the United States is very much tied up in people over the age of 60, right? Like 80% of the wealth in the United States is owned and operated by people over the age of 60. Now, that kind of asymmetry of power is undermining its competitive advantage. You need young people to be given access to capital to take risk in, you know, fairly rational ways in order to transform the society. And I think we're now on the, on the precipice of a massive transformation that you know, our, our social systems can't manage. This is why there's so much frustration among young people. They have so little wealth. You know, like the, the millennials have something like 4% of the wealth of the country, and they're reaching for the age of 40. That's not a system that can be sustained. Interesting. Interesting thoughts there. So, so what are, what are your thoughts and suggestions there? How do you think we can, and I know we're getting deep very quickly here, but yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> do you have a perspective on that? And if yes, let's share. Yeah, I do. You know, my area is politics and policy. So, I mean, it's just my opinion, but I think what we're facing now is I think Trump and the coronavirus or COVID-19 have accelerated events, you know, three years have accelerated what could have taken a decade. And I think now the level of transformation we're facing is so significant that if government in the United States in particular, because the United States anchors the global system, right? The US dollar, the Bretton Woods system, they were all built by the US and, and allies after World War II. If that system collapses, the whole world economy will collapse, not maybe forever, but some period of time. And so it's really important for the United States to have a leader whether that's Biden or whomever, let's say it's Biden in this case because we're, we're in a new election cycle, it's, a, it's important for, for leaders in the United States to begin to, pers- to prepare and be ready for fairly radical social changes like labor disruption and automation removing routine labor, you know, whether it's truck drivers or retail workers or waitresses or you know, a number of other jobs that automation will begin to eat into. They won't have ready access to labor to turn to. Now, we can debate whether jobs will come along through AI and robotics. I'm fully open to that. I think jobs will come. But the pacing and the kind of jobs, it's a different debate. They're not going to be like truck drivers for sure. And so I think that the the social policies have fallen so far behind the technology curve that we're seeing the early stages of what could be a social revolution, you know, on the scale of um, the overthrow of the Russian czars or the communist revolution. If it's a Biden administration, they have to begin to move fairly quickly to new social policies, because to my mind, the U.S. is becoming a very unstable system. And I don't want to see the United States unravel. I don't want to see the world economy unravel. And that feeds into massive changes that are occurring outside the United States, like the rise of China and Asia, right? Asia now is going to be the center of global trade. And China is 
to its credit, leveraging technology in a more effective way than the West is. And so through its Belt and Road Initiative, it's building infrastructure globally across the developing world. And the West dismisses this and says this is not real or the BRI is not something to be worried about, that it'll you know, unravel its own contradictions. This is wishful thinking. This is not born out of logical analysis. What China is building is a global order. And what the United States is losing is its global order. And so that's what we're facing right now. Daniel, what you just said resonates with me. And I've been reading up on Ray Dalio's big cycles over the last 500 years where he talks about the rise and the fall of empires and the factors that contribute to their rise and the fall. Now, if you triangulate that with all the money U.S. is printing, our fiscal policy and everything government is buying, it makes you question and not help but think about the crash of the dollar. And what I am thinking about these days is what if China and 14 of its neighboring countries decide that they no longer need U.S. dollar as their reserve? Maybe they come up with their own, maybe it's crypto-backed. So now with AI being the dominant force here of the future, what role do you see AI playing here? And maybe we can start empirical first and then go into how China's approaching it versus how US is approaching it. Yeah, there's a lot of different corridors to go down in that discussion. I guess the first thing I'd say is, obviously... At the forefront is automation, right? Whether it's factory labor or services, white-collar labor, the transformation of bureaucracies, and now with COVID-19, people working from home. You know, the companies that are doing well in this environment are digital companies like Amazon, Microsoft. We're going to see much more focus on digitalization, much more focus on uh, a digital economy as the older industrial economy begins to unravel or decline. And I think that the way I read AI, and I think you know most people that look at it closely, and AI is not like a simple, it's not like nuclear energy or, or, you know, a simple technology that can be bounded, right? AI is a, a general purpose technology and it will impact multiple industries in different ways, but it'll proliferate through the whole economy, right? It'll impact everything from children's toys to services, to infrastructure, to smart cities, to automation. And so it's not something that, you know, old policies can just be util- used again to fix. You know, this is something that we're going to need to regulate at a very broad level, but not necessarily, you know, constraining algorithms per se, you know, just like through sandboxes, but it's going to be about looking at mundane regulation, right? The small minutia of regulation in the same way we look at how we regulate food or plastic, you know, those kind of things, those detailed micro regulations that, pe- that bore people. That's the kind of thing I think we're facing with AI. And I would compare it to you know, the rise of electricity or the printing press or the combustion engine. The follow-on impact of AI will be substantial. You know, I don't mean to be too dramatic about this, but we are at the precipice of, a, of an entirely different civilization. Right? That's what we're entering. And we're going to need a different kind of regulatory and government sy- governance system to manage it. Because it's, as you know, Elon Musk and Hawking and a lot of other people have suggested, this could be a very unstable technology if, if it isn't managed properly. And the world now, geopolitically, is, is shifting towards a, a regionalization system, right? in part because of Trump's behavior, but also because new wealth is emerging in other places outside the West. And so we don't have the platform to negotiate across the way we used to. And that's a problem, right? That could be a very destabilizing problem in the future. I'm, I'm nodding my head because I agree 100% with everything you're just saying. If I think about automation, right, and in a manufacturing context, 
auto with with some human robot collaboration humans doing higher level value work all of a sudden it can shift the equation if us or north america does it right where they can and now it's the opportunity to bring some of the manufacturing back here by leveraging automation and efficiencies that automation can provide can really change the equation while we train our workers and our resources to to manage and control and manage what we call a control center environment that's one way and we can we can play and 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 I can see how important it is in in region in regionalized economy the one we're moving towards right and accelerated by this pandemic does that make sense what what, yeah. what are your thoughts on that yeah so that actually was my first thought you know a few years ago i thought so where is the world going right you know when i was i was doing all this reading and reading and it's all you do when you're doing a phd is you read all day you're in a library a lot and i thought you know where is this heading and you know my first thought was asia's rising that's obvious so let's assume china is successful rather than debating you know china's potential let's just assume it then china will probably take over mass manufacturing across the board and that won't leave a lot for you know the advanced countries but then of course there's reshoring there's bringing back infrastructure and bringing back manufacturing and so even if we automate that platform that frees up people to do more advanced work but what is that work and to my mind i think it's just my speculation but i think what comes next is the cultural industries i think creativity the arts i think that those areas will be value added just you know if you look at hollywood or silicon valley or the arts of los angeles you know or even new york city i think the arts will be more important in the future than they have been in the past cuz more people will be doing them and i think that a lot of the things we thought were valuable whether it's accounting or you know efficiency issues that the mba provides as a skill set i think those will just become algorithms i think all of that will just be invisible within the platform of manufacturing and and distribution of goods and all of that will just be you know an equation essentially so i think we're we're basically going to build a civilization on top of a platform of full automation and then we'll whatever our work is will be on top of that and i think a lot work will be highly creative and i think that that will impact the school systems as well i'm not sure they're not prepared as far as i can see whether it's you know the privileged universities or the ivy league universities or it's the the, the middle tier universities they don't see this coming to my mind and so they too will be disrupted now i'm not saying that we're just going to outsource all education to moocs or or massively online systems of education uh, but i am saying we're going to reinvent learning around ai and simulations we don't have a choice and i think the classroom model is you know it's an agricultural era form of learning that wasn't that valuable i mean it's useful for storytelling everyone likes to hear a story from a professor but as a way of distributing information it's too slow and so we're going to need a new system of learning too absolutely and it's it's a leftover from the industrial age i totally agree now moving towards china and in based on your experience every time i interact and see ai applications and and where they're heading they continue to impress me with the developments there what has your experience interacting with china so far then what what have you learned about their capabilities in terms of leveraging and utilizing ai and automation Well China is very opaque so it's it's difficult to to gauge uh, strategy and planning right so the west is you know now absorbed in conspiracy theory about China projecting where China is going what China is doing because we just don't know you know on the surface it looks like China is a developing country that you know got access to world trade organization and just scaled out based on some clever policies that are borrowed from Japan and Taiwan and Hong Kong and the other 
uh, tigers that came before them. But there's something deeper about China, which is a history of empire, right? China knows how to build bureaucracies that are effective. And China does scale better than anyone else. So my view is that China is not so much a threat to the West or the North, the global North, but rather China is building markets across the global South. And I think China will lead the global South from Africa to Latin America, the parts of Latin America to Southeast Asia to parts of Asia. India is a different debate because um, India has a history of, of high level of civilization, high empire. They'll, I don't know where they fit in this and how they'll negotiate this change. But the point is that I see the world being bifurcated between China and the United States or the West and, and, and a Chinese built BRI platform. I don't think we're in a new Cold War. I think this is hyperbole. I think that technology leaks. And so there's no way to keep these two systems separate. I know just as, I mean, the, the example people use is, and Windows versus Apple or Google versus iOS, good examples. But, you know, people can switch platforms in that case, right? In, in, in the Cold War, you couldn't switch platforms. So I think in, in what's coming now, you know, might be a neo-Cold War where you have a bifurcated system and two separate platforms, possibly. I, I don't think that's the case either. I think what's happening is that China is, you know, getting lift. You know, it's going from zero to one. And it's done it so impressively that people are just stunned. And so we're just not quite sure what to, to make of it. Whereas the US is going through the opposite problem, which is its, it's governance is so bad that people are stunned by its, its what looks like a massive unraveling. And the problem is that if the US doesn't, doesn't stop this, I mean, for example, definitely get rid of Trump, that's a given, but I would say that it needs a new generation of leaders, more specifically. Uh, I, I tend to have a lot of rants about baby boomers. They had value in their day, but you know, this is not their time. They don't understand technology. They don't appreciate exponential innovation. They grew up in a factory era, you know, in which uh, the social welfare state was functional. A lot of what they they took for granted, whether it's the highway system or infrastructure or um, the social welfare system was handed down to them from the GI generation. And I think that they have largely run things poorly, taken as a whole. And my parents are boomers, so, you know, I'm not out to get them per se, but I'm just trying to be, you know, somewhat objective about how I, I grade them. And I think the best thing that could happen right now is a new generation, whether it's Generation X, Millennials, or whomever, begin to make a move now in this next phase and start to restructure the policy environment of the United States. And anyway, the point being, I'm on a rant there, the point being that the United States, to my mind, has a very bright future, right? And I, see that, I say that because it is a fully-fledged democracy, not, notwithstanding the, the damage done by Citizens United and the Supreme Court and the multinational corporations breaking the, the democracy up into colonized factions. Regardless of all of that, the U.S. has real dynamic energy, right, in a way that most other countries in the West don't have. And I think that a new generation could take the helm and drive the ship in the right direction. So if and when new generations step up and do that job, then I think we'll push off from this and start to build infrastructure and start to think about clean tech and Internet of Things and automation and yeah. 5G. You, you, men you mentioned uh, a great, great point here, and, and I think it sits at the center of it. It's governance. You mentioned that China got the governance right while we are still struggling with it. Based on your experience, are there any learnings from what China has done that we can we can adopt or we can learn from from their experience? You know, I really don't necessarily think so. I think China is a technocracy, you know, modeled after other Asian technocracies, but it's also a fusion of 
it's Confucian bureaucracy. You know, it's sort of medieval Confucian bureaucracy. You know, it's like 9 million Chinese communists in the Communist Party. It's quite a big, large number of people, but they're governing, you know, 1.4 billion, maybe larger if the BRI is successful. I don't think the West, because of its history, should model itself on China. I think Western democracy is awesome, you know, in every sense of the word, but it's also unique to its history. I think imposing democracy on countries abroad, like the United States has tried to do over the last century, was a disaster. I think it was a big mistake. And I think it's just a neo-colonial error. And I think that we need to allow different regions of the world to govern themselves independently, to rise or fall based on their own efforts. And I think that we can, the world is large enough that a Chinese system and a, and a U.S. democratic system can both function. In fact, I think democracy is very good as a catch on corruption. That's always sort of how it's praised. But it's very bad when education is not foundational and you start to see a, a kind of a, um, a warping of the electorate where the people are not qualified to elect leaders. You know, this is very bad. You know, democracies can't survive unless they have an ele educated electorate. And so I, I think the West should just focus on its own house, become very fixated in education again, skills development, ethics, some kind of uh, patriotism of some sort, civics, and allow China to do its own thing. I don't, I don't think we need to, you know, all do the same thing. As we think about the future, as we think about one coming out of this pandemic, call it the post-pandemic, and then the, where the world needs to go, what are your thoughts? What is your advice to the world leaders that may be listening to this right now or the future generation that has that potential and that needs to lead? What would you tell them? Where do they need to start and how do they start? I'm very biased towards technology, so I'm often accused of being a determinist. And I think there's some validity to that criticism. You know, it's hard for me to negotiate that objectively, but I think we're entering an era where software is fundamental to everything. I don't think there will be companies in a decade or two that aren't tech companies. And I think that as software eats the world, it's going to be critical for people to be better educated at every, you know, at every age about the ups and downs, the upside and downside of technology. Now, that doesn't mean everyone should be a software coder. I think this is silly. But it does mean that people should appreciate that technology is a leverageable tool for social change and that we should develop a vision about where we want to go. I think we need to move beyond neoliberal rhetoric about markets running things and start to think about envisioning a future we want to move toward. In that context, I think science fiction can be very helpful. It gives you what-if scenarios that you can aim for, you know, whether it's Star Trek or, or whatever. The point is that young people say in the context of education, for example, should be inspired by the future, not afraid of it. And right now with climate change and the sort of uh, unraveling of democracies, I think young people are becoming more and more afraid. That's bad. And then we have you know, issues around how to leverage those technologies, like clean tech over fossil fuels. Fossil fuels have to go. This is not a debate. The question is how. How do we transition beyond fossil fuels? And part of that is scaling up clean energy. Part of that is research. And part of that is you know, looking at the curve around falling costs, you know, whether it's solar or wind or, and other, other parts are just um, infrastructure. Like in Africa, Ethiopia is building a hydroelectric dam, which will be, I think, the second largest electricity producer in the, in the continent. All of these things need to get done. You know? That's, again, to come back to China, where China has a lot of value. China has the capital and the ambition to build infrastructure in, de in the developing world. And that's where it needs to go. Right? The West is mature for the most part. 
That's not to say the West doesn't need a transition to clean energy. It desperately does. But the, the real worry should be the developing world where the vast majority of people are, where all the consumers are coming online. You know, this overlaps questions of uh, food production. We, we can't afford factory farms for 10 billion people. We need a different system of food production. Right? We need to desalinate water. We don't have the water we need for 10 billion people. You know, we need to leverage energy more effectively, more efficiently. We need to use data and analytics to, to do that. So I have a few questions for you. One, taking it back to the U.S., um, I myself, I'm a millennial. I've seen a lot of change over technology, and I really got involved with working with technology about, I would say, in 2013 and grew with a strong interest in AI. Would you say that with the radical change that needs to occur, have you seen a spike in this since we've had COVID? with the younger generation, maybe the more millennial generation, um, have you seen a shift because of COVID with, with artificial intelligence? I can't answer that. I've been locked down for four months. So, you know, all the data I'm getting is off the internet, like from you know, blogs and stuff. But I would say that there's no doubt that we're heading towards a digitized society, right? I mean, we don't know how long COVID-19 is going to go on for. Here in Canada, this border with the United States is closed. That might be closed for six months or more, right? We don't know what the world is going to look like in a year or two years. We don't even know what the time horizon is for COVID-19. So I would say that it's obvious that virtual work is probably going to be the norm. It's been the norm for many people, especially young people, because um, there's so much contract labor now, right? Full-time jobs are hard to come by. And so when you're a contract laborer, one of the only benefits is often virtual work, so you can travel. And I think that young people are going to have to think, just as the protesters have been doing, you know, the Gen Z protesters, they're going to have to leverage their, their numbers to start to change the social system, like whether it's the healthcare system in the United States or social welfare policies or the possibility of pensions or, you know, you can't be young forever. And eventually you're going to need some support systems. And as it stands, the U.S. is constructed around the, the boomers. And so they're getting all the benefits of the social welfare system for the most part. And that has to change. And also like what you touched about too, with we're going to be becoming more you know, creative and into the arts. So you see it shifting where we're really automating our work and AI is going to take over a lot of the jobs. Now, do you see this with more time for us at our hands to be more in the creative arts field? Or do you see people just shifting work completely? How do you, how do you envision that? Well, it's a fragmented change. Some places will do it better. Like I think Spain has basic income already. Canada's negotiating basic income. I don't know how quickly it'll come online. But people still think that basic income is a debate, and I think that's great. But I think it's it's a little bit um, disingenuous. You know, if you look down the road, it's clear that automation is going to impact some sectors, maybe not every sector, but the sectors it does impact. These people will not have a place to go financially, and so our economy has been designed where if you work, you get money. If you don't work, you don't get money, and like, the cost of that is that is uh, you know growing homelessness and despair and high suicide rates. That has to change. It's, and it's mental not, health. Yeah. Mental health rate is crazy. Also the decline in reproduction, right? Young people can't have kids. They can't afford it. And so in the West, you have plummeting numbers of reproduction and everyone's scratching their head saying, why is this happening? Well, it's happening because people under the age of 40 have 3% of, of the country's wealth. Three. What are they going to do with that? You know? It's crazy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's what happened to Germany too after the World War II. Here, here's the, the question, and it's pretty relevant. And it, the article came out today where the Twitter billionaire Jack Dorsey just announced that he's going to fund the universal basic income experiment. So 
wondering if you have any thoughts on basic universal income. Does that make sense or does that not make sense given your take and experience with policy and AI? I mean, it's an expensive adventure, an expensive venture. So I don't think there's an alternative in the short term, but I don't think it solves all problems in the long term. So first of all, basic income is a national project, right? It's not a global one. It's only national governments that can provide it. So if you're a wealthy country, you might be able to afford it, but if you're not, you won't be able to. And I think the question is, where does the tax revenue come to then distribute as a basic income? I think there's solutions for that. Andrew Yang, for example, proposes a certain approach. Like if you look at Alaska, they've got a dividend for, for oil. No one questions that. No one says that's communism. But I think we could probably have a dividend for automation. You know, I'll be honest with you. I think that the kind of capitalism that we've taken for granted is going to change. I mean, it's not going to be communism. I think instead what's happening is that tech companies are becoming monopolies. And essentially, they're taking over whole industries. And as they do that, the problem is no one can compete with them, even along market lines. You know, there's, whether it's price or quality or scale or scope, Amazon and other companies will just do it better because they're using algorithms to improve production and efficiency and scale at all, all the time. And so I think what we're seeing is that the rise of a, a tech era where market churn begins to slow down and you have these automated fortresses of production that run the economy. Now, that's bad in some respects because it's not capitalism if you're a capitalist. But the upside is that as that all becomes automated, it may not matter because people won't be that excited to go into those industries. And I think where markets will, will, will go is towards creative industries and creativity. But it won't be like the companies of the past. You know, it won't be like um, building, you won't, you won't do a, an IPO or an ICO and build your company. It'll be like individual clusters of artists that generate film or poetry or philosophy. I mean, these are a bit trivial in a sense because people think, well, you can't build an economy on philosophy. But the point is that I think that people will pay for the arts more in the future when all their other needs are met. You know, if you look at people that are very wealthy today and aren't working, they tend to do things that, I mean, they could channel that capital into businesses. Some do, but very often what they do is they just become engaged in other areas, whether it's sports or the arts or something that's just more meaningful to them because they no longer have scarcity to deal with. And so they do whatever they want to do. And I think that's the kind of world we're entering, but it's going to take you know, a very bumpy, rocky process to get there. Raising the quality of life, yeah. in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I could say just one last thing, I, I generally fight with the Marxists because I just think they're wrong. But where I think they're right, I think that Marx's critique of capitalism was, was right. I think he got it right. But what he was wrong about is he didn't know what was coming next. And so they just speculate and make up stuff, as far as I can see, about what the solutions are. And then in turn, what happens is they try out these experiments and they fail, mostly in part because they're done too early, right? You know, in Russia or whatever, they're shifting from agricultural to industry instead of industry to something else. But more importantly, I think where Marx was right is that he had a vision of a future where the proletariat would disappear as a category and we'd be living in, a, in an abundant society where people could do whatever they want with their time. I think that's coming. But the, the way we get there was going to require a lot of um, smart thinking and, and um, social, I was going to say protests, not quite, it's not just protests, but social revolution of some kind, not, not so much mobs, but like working as, a, as communities to overturn what I think are, is an old, old and bad system. Yeah. It's, it's funny you're just mentioning these things because right before this podcast recording, I was reading the 2019 annual report from Social Capital. It's a letter written by Chamath. And one of the things he talked about was uh, the modern Gilded Age. And the tech companies like Google and Facebook and Apple becoming monopolies. 
in uh, how he he tried drawing parallels to how Gilded Age came to an end and how he's seeing the similar pattern where we need to move from this modern Gilded Age to the new progressive era. And one of the things he highlighted was that these monopolies need to, given the regulatory tightening and given the lack of the, the real capitalism that we see because they just dominate, it needs to, they're going to be broken out. In the next 10 years, you see them broken down into smaller companies and having more balanced play, right? And I think it also plays in with the talent too, because as you can, given the, the mountain of cash that they're sitting on, they can hoard the talent and have the talent and young generation work on meaningless features like uh, getting people to click on more ads versus things like clean energy or space you know, or where, where the world needs to go. Parts of what you said relates to that. What are your thoughts on these big tech monopolies and how do you see them play out in future? Well, I think Chamath is brilliant, first of all. I, I admire the guy tremendously and I, I love watching or, or reading or, or enjoying what he has to say. Where I may disagree, I guess, is that algorithms are the companies, right? Talent's important, no doubt about it, but algorithms are what's going to display. So Bill D is going to be the core infrastructure of these tech companies. And so I think even if you break them up, you're not going to break up the algorithms. And so they'll just reassert themselves all over again, you know, like that worm or whatever. You cut it apart and it grows back. I don't think we can go back to old industrial age solutions to monopoly anymore because software is not like, you know, the bureaucracies of the Fordist factory era, right? It's not like Mad Men. We don't live in Mad Men anymore. And so I think what we're seeing is a transition beyond the old industrial model of capitalism where monopoly is just the way things are going to go. But we can minimize or mediate or manage or, or try to negotiate with those monopolies. But I think that even if, for example, Amazon was eliminated somehow, whether you know fairly or unfairly, some Chinese equivalent would, would show up and, and do, do the same thing. Or another country, you know, just not to say it's all Chinese. But, but the point is that these monopolies are built out of the algorithmic era, right? Because what they do is augment our in, in human capacities and automate cognitive processes that are unique to human beings, and they will continue to evolve, right? Think about algorithms as also being exponential in terms of their quality, right? And this is the, you know, the debate about what is AI becoming, right? AI, I, I don't necessarily personally believe that AI will be a self-aware machine like in Terminator that takes over. But I do think that algorithms will continue to evolve at a rate that we will not be able to control or predict. And in that regard, we're facing a different kind of challenge than we've, we've seen in the past. And so that does require some oversight and regulation. That was actually my leading into my next question for you, um, Daniel, just asking about responsible AI and being careful when it comes to AI on a global scale. What are your thoughts about that? I think being careful is important. You know, we need to be slow in some respects or, or do this through trial and error. But I think it's inevitable that mistakes will be made. I mean, the military is going to leverage these technologies one thing that comes to mind, just as a sort of an analog, is I was debating with a friend of mine who's a gun rights guy, and he was saying, you know, everybody should have an, uh, an M4, or everybody should have their own weapon, especially in, in the United States now where there's so much polarization. And all I'm thinking is, you're looking at guns as though they are some sort of solution. And all I'm thinking is, guns are the muskets of the 21st century. You know, when you have weapons that, that leverage sound or lasers, you could blind whole armies, you can deafen whole armies in one go. 
you're not going to be able to use those guns if you're blind and deaf. You know, and if that's controlled by drones or by AI algorithms, it's a different generation of warfare that's coming too. And so as we transition to a tech-driven system of society and economy and military and, and institutional change, old solutions won't work. That's all I'm saying. And, and I think we're going to need to think through new solutions, but it's going to be trial and error because we don't know what this is. Like It's like a Pandora's box. We open the box, all kinds of stuff goes on. We don't know what to do about it. So everyone says, well, let's just close the lid. You know, It's like, it's too late for that. That lid's not going to close again. Exactly. Like what you were saying, where it could potentially spiral out of control. We do have to be careful or could go you know, beyond our intelligence itself. Yeah, I think so. I think you know the, the best case scenario is that AI is an extension of us. It will augment our own abilities. We'll evolve alongside it so we don't have to see it as some sort of alien machine. But I don't think we'll evolve evenly. You know, Some people will have better tools than others, and they'll leverage and exploit those tools. So that can lead to even greater inequality. That's a problem. And in turn, I think you know, whether it's individuals or nation states can leverage these tools for, for, for bad as well, like whether it's criminal organizations or just crazy people or bad governments. So your parting words to aspiring AI entrepreneurs, a lot of our listeners are aspiring AI entrepreneurs or have AI startups. From a policy and governance standpoint, what are a couple of things you want them to take away from this, given your extensive experience? So I'm a policy guy, so I'm always going to anchor my whatever suggestions I have in policy. You know, more power to them, first of all. I think we need as many entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs in the AI space as we can get. But I also think we need to be cautious because we don't know what the downsides are. We need a balance, I guess. You know, aspiration and caution. And that's a hard thing to get right, to negotiate the distance between those two. But I also think, you know, to, to circle back to what I was saying initially, we need government to take a firmer, stronger hand. We need a governments that are composed of people that are tech literate, ideally engineers, or at least people that are conscious of what these technologies do. Fewer lawyers, most definitely. I think that's for a past age. And I think we need governments that are, are, are at least technocratic in their outlook, if they're not staffed directly by engineers. And we need complementarity between smart government and smart entrepreneurs working collaboratively for the benefit of all, not just a, you know, a market that is trying to um, outcompete or, or build monopolies that can separate them from competition, right? That's, that's not going to help us in the long run. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great, great, great feedback. Hey, what we'll do is we'll we'll put the links to your books and, and your work and your, your profile uh, in our show notes. And thank you for taking the time, Daniel. It was very enlightening to, to get your perspective on on policy and, and how the world should be and, and where we need to focus. Super valuable. So thank you for taking the time out. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you very much. It was super fun. Thank you so much for being here today. If you like what you heard and are interested in more, visit us online at brainsbehind.ai and sign up for my monthly AI startup tracker. That's where I cut through the noise and bring you AI startups that are making tangible progress. Till next time, go out, be the brains behind AI.